Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The G7 Summit of Western leaders kicked off in Cornwall this weekend with an apparent bromance between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden running high. Told the Prime Minister we have something in common. Both married way above I'm not going to descend from that one. I'm not going to disagree with the President that, or indeed on anything else. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week's episode is a G7 special, where we'll be looking at the gathering of world leaders and the key topics they discussed, from vaccinating the poorest in the world and tackling tax avoidance to climate change and girls' education. And we'll be taking a special look at what the summit means for Boris Johnson amid his latest Brexit travails. Joining me down here in Cornwall to discuss is our political editor George Parker and political correspondent Jasmine Cameron-Shaleshi. And far away in possibly sunnier Brighton is our public policy editor, Peter Foster. So George, Jasmine and Peter, welcome back to the pod. Morning, Seb. Hi. Thanks, Seb. So we're down here in Cornwall, except Peter, you're still at home in Brighton. George, you're quite well versed with Cornwall. You actually came here last week. So enthusiastic were you for this summit to contrast what it is to be here for an international leader versus the people who work here. Do they actually welcome these hundreds of people descending on them? Um, Generally, there's a mixed view, I would say, on that. There are a lot of people who are complaining about the fact that the roads are closed. There's a whole load of security. There's miles of metal fencing going up. Businesses are shutting down. But, you know, I think there's a, a pride about this. And I think, actually, it's one of those things where people will complain a bit beforehand and actually see the pictures of their own region or nation, as many Cornish would regard it, on the television screens being beamed around the world and take a sense of pride. But there are two sides to Cornwall. That's what I was trying to explore last week. There's the side of Cornwall that the world leaders will see, which is tourist attractions and millionaires' homes on the coastline. But there is a sort of hidden poverty and housing crisis in this in this area as well, which I think is important to recognise. Well, one of the things, Jasmine, people viewing this summit via TV might not quite realise is just how disparate it is, because you and I are both currently in Falmouth on the south coast, whereas the summit is actually on the north coast of Cornwall, with the leaders split between um, Cardiff Bay and St Ives. So it's a symbol of how small the place is. In some ways, it's quite handy that it all is quite spread out and quite disparate, because after all, we're still in a pandemic. Leaders can't even shake hands with each other and have to do the awkward elbow bump. So perhaps it's a good thing that we're not all jammed into one place. Although on our train ride down here, the Foreign Office kindly put on a special media train and down from London. And it was all very distanced and comfortable until we arrived at Truro and had to then decamp onto a small two carriage train where there was no social distancing and not enough seats for anyone. But let's not dwell too much on the optics of the summit and dive into the substance in our main discussion of the week. The G7 summit is a major moment for the UK, 
And it was meant to mark a turning point when the worst of the pandemic had passed and the leaders of the West developed economies would gather to ensure that everyone was better prepared for such catastrophes in the future. But it was especially important for Boris Johnson, who is hosting this year's summit amid the muggy weather of Cardiff Bay, to put forward his vision of what global Britain looks like. Although the UK Prime Minister dislikes the phrase special relationship to describe UK-US ties, he eagerly told the BBC that the relationship was indeed still special. I, look, I don't, I don't, I don't mind the, 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 the phrase special relationship, but because it is, it is special, and there's, but it's, you know, it's a, it encompasses a reality, which is that the, uh, the UK and the US have a, a real congruence of views on some stuff that really matters to the world. So, George, we're recording this on Friday morning when there's still much of the summit still to happen. But so far, despite these questions of how well both leaders would get on, they've really gone out of their way to show that everything is happy as you could imagine. And Boris Johnson went as far to describe Joe Biden as a breath of fresh air. So you could say Donald Trump, who was that guy? I've never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was a real loving uh, on the beach at Carbis Bay. And Seb, you'll be glad to you know the sun is starting to come out now in Cornwall. And I think that's going to reflect the, uh, the sort of upbeat, sunny mood at this summit generally. But certainly, yes, I mean, there was a real effort to put bygones behind them. You know, the fact that Johnson obviously had been close to Donald Trump, that Biden had memorably described Johnson as an emotional and physical clone of the former president. And they really went out of their way to make it clear that, that was behind them. And, you know, the fact is there are a lot of things which unite these two leaders. They've been thrown together by political circumstance. Joe Biden's determined to reassert American leadership on the world stage. Boris Johnson happens to be sharing the two arguably most important international summits this year, the G7 here in Cornwall and later on the COP26 climate change summit in Glasgow in November. And so Boris Johnson wants results. He wants to show that Britain can be a convening power on the world stage after Brexit. And Joe Biden wants to show that American leadership is producing results as well. So they've been thrown together in that respect. The body language was good, as you say. And afterwards, Boris Johnson came out and said that the relationship was indestructible between the two countries. But, and there's a big but to that, there are differences, one on Northern Ireland and the ongoing problems there. And also, I think, you know, with American engagement on the world stage, which everyone's welcoming, of course, after the Trump era, the Americans will come with demands which some Western leaders will find awkward. And I think one of those will be on China, where I think Joe Biden will be demanding a more aggressive stance from the West. And Boris Johnson, who's tried to hedge his bets a bit on China in recent months, I think we'll find that slightly awkward in, in months to come. Indeed. And Jasmine, going back to that convening power thing, you can imagine what Boris Johnson wants when all the leaders leave this summit is pictures of them elbow bumping, looking happy and smiling. And that was what you saw from Joe Biden yesterday, that he was caught off camera by the BBC. And they said, are you disappointed by the weather? And he was saying, it's so beautiful here. It doesn't even matter. It's sunny. And of course, all this stuff is fluff. But in terms of optics, you can imagine given how nervous Boris Johnson was going into this summit, he must be quite happy about how it's come off so far. Yeah, I think that's correct. And I think it's important to see G7 in the context of the UK trying to reposition itself post-Brexit and really establish what global Britain means. And so certainly the policy of the G7 is important and making sure that there are tangible policies that Johnson can point to after the summit. But also, as you said, it's the optics and giving the impression that the UK is a global leader and can work with other countries in or out of the EU. 
Now, let's move on to one topic which is not so happy, and that is Northern Ireland. And Pete Foster, the point is that we've had here is that tensions over the Northern Ireland Protocol as signed as part of the UK's withdrawal agreement from the EU have been increasing rapidly. Give us a background on what's going on at the moment. So, you know, you would have all heard about the sausage wars, which are on one level very trivial, but they go to the core of this issue uh, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is that in order to do Brexit, in order to avoid a north-south border in Ireland, Boris Johnson agreed that all goods that went from Great Britain into Northern Ireland would follow EU rules. And that includes, for example, that sausages and chilled meats, chicken nuggets have to go frozen, as they do now from the UK. If you send them to Salamanca or Strasbourg, they need to go frozen. And essentially, the British government is reneging on that. And that's a problem because the European Union feels that Johnson's going back on his word. And, and Johnson talks about the rules-based international order, just as he's in the middle, as the EU sees it, of ripping up a treaty that he signed, came into force only six months ago. And for all the mood music in Cornwall, there are really difficult days coming up. There's 20 days now between now and whether see whether the UK follows the rules on sausages or decides to unilaterally break them. And then we see what the EU does, it's promised retaliation. And, you know, there are scenes in in Northern Ireland, masked men marching through Porter Down, down the Shankill, promising there's going to be trouble. And so if there is trouble in Northern Ireland, then Johnson stands his ground on a point of principle, on a point of defending the territorial and constitutional integrity of the UK, which is what he said in the Commons. And I think a lot of people in the UK would probably support him on that, then the conversations between Washington and London might be rather less cosy than they've been at the summit. Well, George, this comes to the question about the protocol. And Boris Johnson didn't like this. He signed up to it because he wanted to get a Brexit withdrawal deal done before going to the country on a general election. Of course, he was rewarded with that big majority. But the fact is, it was always going to be incredibly difficult to implement. And did the UK ever really believe in implementing the protocol? Well, there are different explanations for that, aren't there? I mean, you hear people in Downing Street saying that Boris Johnson signed this under duress and therefore he's right to sort of try and unpick it. There's another probably less charitable explanation, which is Boris Johnson doesn't really care about detail very much and possibly didn't understand the full implications of what he was signing. There's another aspect of Boris Johnson's character, of course, which applies from politics through to his private life, which is you do things one day because you think you can probably get out of that scrape further down the line everything will work out okay in the end so I think all of those things basically came together and what you've ended up with is the sort of clash of two cultures really you've got the European Union which prides itself as an organization built on law and statute and international agreements and you've got the British approach or certainly the Boris Johnson approach which is you sort of muddle through and take a slightly more pragmatic approach. And when you hear or see David Frost writing in the Financial Times, for example, bemoaning EU legal purism, as he sees it, well, that's what the EU does, unfortunately. So it's a clash of cultures. And at the moment, both sides are deadlocked and it's hard to see exactly how they're going to find a way through. Well, this dispute did threaten to overrule the G7 summit because there was a story that appeared on the front page of the Times the day before the whole thing began, which revealed there'd been a formal diplomatic rebuke from the US, the UK, for inflaming tensions and encouraging the UK to make compromises, even if they were unpopular. Now, the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who was in that bilateral meeting between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden, told the BBC on Friday that actually things were okay in that meeting and that there was actually complete coherence between the UK and the US on the issue of Northern Ireland. 
We understand the US interest in it as a long-standing guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement, and it was an opportunity for the Prime Minister to explain that we want a flexible, pragmatic approach that deals with the equities on both sides. But for that to happen, the EU must be less purist, more pragmatic and more flexible in the implementation of it. The ball is very much in the EU's court in relation to that. It feels as if the US is being good cop in this summit here. The readout from the meeting between President Biden and Boris Johnson, it said that both sides were committed to the Good Friday Agreement. Nobody's looking at trying to raise the tensions here. But imagine when the European leaders join us down in Cornwall, that they might be a little less diplomatic than Joe Biden was. Yes, indeed. But, you know, the truth is the Brits have a point here, which is that Northern Ireland has unique circumstances. And if you read the protocol, it's actually a kind of jumble of contradictions. It starts with a preamble that this protocol shouldn't impinge on the everyday lives of ordinary Northern Irish people. As far as possible, it should reduce checks at the border. And then if you carry on reading, it lists vast annexes of EU law that Northern Ireland will follow. And just as Boris Johnson perhaps, you know, signed it with his fingers behind its back, the Irish government told the EU this deal was going to work. It was going to avoid a north-south border. And, you know, that may well have been an unrealistic expectation that it was going to work by creating a border in the Irish Sea that unionists would accept. And so I can see a world where actually, yes, there's a strong Irish lobby in America, but some of these issues that are coming up, things like rabies and guide dogs and other real issues created by this border in the Irish Sea I think, you know, the Americans will also quietly be putting pressure on Brussels to be a bit more realistic because this does create a border inside the internal market of the UK. Johnson's pretty good at playing the national sovereignty card. And I think the EU needs to be very careful about the fight it picks because if Northern Ireland is in real unrest and turbulence and Brussels is sitting there banging on about its regulations, it may find itself on the wrong side of the argument. Well, this is what Ursula von der Leyen had to say this week about the dispute and really putting the onus on the UK to try and come up with solutions to the issue. We agreed with the United Kingdom that the protocol was the only solution ensuring the absence of a hard border of Northern Ireland. We've been really debating that since years and we found the one and only solution. Now, we have a treaty on that, the withdrawal agreement. It has been signed by both sides, Pacta Sunt Servanda. It is important that we now implement the protocol. So, George, where do you think this goes next? Time is running out for the next Brexit deadline on when more of these checks are meant to be introduced here. And it feels as if Lord David Frost, who is the person Boris Johnson has just devolved all his Brexit thinking to, is being pretty hard line on this. Yes, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't look promising. And David Frost is known as a sort of fairly intransigent negotiator up to a point. And it's quite interesting to hear Boris Johnson defending David Frost in the House of Commons today. There's a bit of a sense in Downing Street that people in the EU are trying to pick off David Frost as being the problem in this negotiation. I'm told by other ministers that Boris Johnson's even more hardline than David Frost. So there is a problem. One of the ideas that the Americans are, are floating is the idea that, and certainly the EU has been floating this as well, is the idea that Britain aligns with EU veterinary standards, at least for a temporary period. That would help to resolve a lot of the border checks on the border. But that's a point of principle which the Brits don't want to cede on, which is that they need the ability to change their standards to do trade deals, particularly with America. So it's hard to see exactly where it goes from here. But as Peter mentioned, we're in the marching season. 
It's a time of traditional tensions on the streets of Northern Ireland. They've got to make a decision fairly soon on the chilled meat issue, at least. My guess is, in the end, that they'll do what the EU often does in these negotiations, where you can't get a breakthrough, you kick the can a bit further down the road and extend the grace period. But it's hard to see how they find a way through. And just the last question on this point, Peter, obviously the thing that the EU would like the UK to do is sign this temporary agreement on food standards that would cut 80% of checks. And there's been some reports that the US has privately urged the UK to do this and said, well, look, if you do this, it won't get in the way of US free trade deal. But the people I spoke to in Downing Street this week say very clearly, we will not be doing that because that's why we got rid of that UK-wide backstop because the whole concept and vision of Brexit from Boris Johnson and David Frost is having that ability to diverge, even if it's just theoretical. And that means they're not going to go along with this idea. No, I don't think they are going to go along with the idea. And also, I don't think it really fixes the problem. You know, US trade deal isn't happening anytime soon. It's not where Joe Biden is orienting his own domestic politics. He needs to get a trade negotiating authority out of Congress. So it's not as though that particular carrot is really being dangled particularly close to the nose of the British There is a real problem here, which is that that border is essentially a rest of world trade process border being applied to a very high frequency internal border in the inside of the UK market. And even a veterinary agreement still leaves huge amounts of burdens. It might work for supermarkets, but it still leaves really significant burdens on GB companies sending stuff to Northern Ireland. And the worry is that they'll just stop doing it. And that'll mean higher prices, less choice for consumers in Northern Ireland. So I don't think a vet deal is really a magic bullet. I don't think the Brits are looking for it. I think they're looking for something much broader that essentially recognises the equivalence that, you know, our regulations may not be the same, but they're very equivalent. There's no risk to the single market. And on that basis, we can take a much more risk-based approach to what will actually upset the single market. And that, as you heard from Ursula von der Leyen, is just not how the EU works. So there's a big, big gap there. Now, let's have a look at some of the other themes from the G7 summit beyond the Johnson-Biden relationship and Brexit. I think the big policy announcement, George, we've had is about sharing vaccines with the world. So pledging one billion jabs. How significant is this? Well, it is significant. and It's welcome. I mean, certainly if you listen to some of the, um, the aid organisations and medical charities, they say it's not enough. I mean, this is a pledge which has been rolled out over the next year. Some people say they'd like to see this delivered by the end of 2021. But I think it is significant. The big picture of the G7 is an attempt by the West to show that they can deliver for the developing world and that they can show leadership. And, you know, we talk about vaccine diplomacy sometimes. There's real concern in some of the Western capitals at the way that China and Russia in particular have been using vaccines as a way of extending their influence into the developing world, offering jabs with strings attached, as Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, put it. Over the course of this weekend, we expect to see them make pledges on tackling climate change, poverty alleviation generally. So it's an important first step, I think, for the G7 after four years of effective paralysis while Donald Trump was the president of the West getting their act together and trying to do things. Jasmine, do you think this is coming a little bit too late in all this? Because there is that tension between what they have to do at home while trying to play this global role. And it's a classic thing of these summits that they make these big, bold promises. But then when the reality actually to deliver it can be a little bit more tricky. Yes, I certainly think it's a rather belated response. 
And I think politically, there is no way that Boris Johnson could have rolled out vaccines in the UK, as well as in the developing nations. I think there was genuinely a sense, especially come, you know, December, January of this year, of needing to vaccinate the most vulnerable in this country. But I think there is a growing sense that it is impossible to tackle this pandemic without coordinated action. And the rise of the Delta variant first identified in India is a good example of of how quickly it is for a strain of the virus in another country to spread to the UK and potentially destabilise an entire country's vaccine rollout. And it obviously needs to be put into the context of the main story you've been writing about this week, which is the cuts to the UK's foreign aid budget, that when the UK's public finances took a big battering following the start of the pandemic, the decision was made by Chancellor Rishi Sunak to cut the UK's overseas aid budget from 0.7 to 0.5%. And that's been highly criticised by former prime ministers, by Conservative MPs, and is even centres within government that Boris Johnson is privately very unhappy about this cut but it was forced upon him by the Chancellor. And these rebels within the Conservative Party tried to force a vote on Monday in the House of Commons, but they got tied up in their legalistic issues with the House of Commons rule book, which meant they couldn't do it. But there's clearly a lot of unhappiness. And it is going to be a question about whether this will be raised by other countries in Cornwall. Yeah, and I think there's this growing tension that the UK has of wanting to betray itself as, as a global leader and putting out quite impressive rhetoric But the practicalities of the budget and wanting to secure the country's recovery from COVID. And so there's a sense that what the government's saying and what the government's doing, it doesn't really match on this issue of international aid. And yes, while there are some, um, you know, perhaps Red Bull MPs who would, you know, take the attitude of charity starts at home, there's been a lot of pushback from conservative backbenchers who have said, well, at a time of a global pandemic, now is not the right time to be cutting back on aid and stepping back. It's a time to be stepping forward. And I think this isn't an issue that is going to go away anytime soon. And certainly while the rebellion, it wasn't to be on Monday, Conservative backbenchers are thinking of ways to push the government on this and to ensure that the UK returns to its 0.7% target in time. And it feels to me, George, the issue is that really nobody has ever done a good enough job of selling the importance of that aid target at home. That obviously it's one of the most powerful weapons in British diplomacy, as well as that convening power that Boris Johnson is showing off this weekend. And, you know, the optics of it look dreadful for the prime minister. You're talking about climate change as well. Another big issue where he's looking to try and make some progress on cross-border carbon taxes and reducing emissions. Yet again, climate change is going to hit the developing world the hardest and the poorest are going to suffer at the time of which we're cutting our funds to them. Well, I think your point about them failing to sell the uh, the 0.7% aid target is absolutely correct and a real shame, to be honest, because the UK is the only one of the G7 countries that actually took seriously the pledges made at the Glen Eagles. I think it was a G8 rather than a G7 at the time. I think Russia was still involved back in 2005 to go for that 0.7% target. I think the UK did it. It stuck with it through the austerity years. But the reason the British government has not made a fuss about it is because it's something which many voters dislike, because they think charity begins at home, and because they know that the right-wing press will not support it and are very hostile towards it as well. And it has echoes, actually, of the failure of successive British governments to make the case for EU membership for exactly the same reason. And you store up problems in the long run because, in the end, you have a policy which people don't support anymore. And then finally, Jasmine, some of the other topics being covered at the summit. One is girls' education abroad. And this is one thing that Boris Johnson has been personally involved in. What are the leaders hoping to achieve? 
Yeah, so there's a real sense that the impact of the pandemic on girls and women has been pretty disproportionate. And there are lots of concerns about gender-based violence increasing over the pandemic. There are concerns about young girls dropping out of school entirely. And often education is seen as the path to escaping poverty, especially in low-income and middle-income countries. And so the G7 countries have committed to expanding catch-up and education in developing countries by 2026, are planning to boost maths and literacy programmes, and have also pledged to prioritise global overseas aid on this issue of girls' education. And again, it's particularly awkward for the UK government in terms of the foreign aid cuts. So girls' education has been prioritised by Dominic Raab and the government has said that it will be spending around £400 on girls' education. But charities and NGOs have said that girls' education will be impacted by the foreign aid cuts. And so there's this continual tension that we're seeing played out. And then the other big announcement we've seen, George, is on global tax avoidance, which I'm sure you've heard at many G7 summits over the years. And before the main festivities kicked off in Cornwall, there was this announcement from the finance leaders that they would agree on a global minimum tax rate of 15%. And this was an aim to try and avoid companies shunting around their profits from country to country to pay as minimal tax as possible. What did you make of the announcement and will it actually come off? So just give us two seconds. Trolley's just going by on a cobbled street. Hang on one sec. The BAPs have been delivered. Well, the G7 leaders are not known for having detailed discussions on the nicety of tax reform, but I think, you know, this is probably one of the most significant things that's going to come out of this whole G7 summit. It's been something that people have been talking about at least since 2013. So if they can get an agreement, it will be a real feather in the cap of the G7. But, and as we've been reporting this week, the details are not all nailed down. Joe Biden would have to get this deal through Congress. He's very conscious of the fact that the deal looks a bit like it's aimed primarily at American tech companies. And of course, that's the main objective of many European leaders. They want more money out of Google and Facebook and all the others that do business in their countries but don't pay very much tax. And so the Americans want to broaden the scope of the tax, possibly to include financial services firms. And of course, that's something that would impact on the city of London, particularly for big international banks like HSBC and Standard Chartered. So Rishi Sunak, the British Chancellor, is pushing back on that. So although, in principle, a tax deal is within reach and it'll be a great achievement for the G7, there's still a lot of detail to be thrashed out and it's still got to go through, of course, the G20, much larger group of nations further down the track. But progress is being made and it's encouraging. And then finally, something entirely different from the G7, I'm sure our listeners will want to hear about, is what's happening on Monday. Boris Johnson will have to make the decision about whether to relax all the coronavirus restrictions amid a rapid rise in cases of the Delta variant of the virus that was first spotted in India. We've been reporting over the past week that the Prime Minister has been considering a two-week delay or mix and matching some kind of rules by allowing, say, bigger weddings to go ahead, but keeping other restrictions in place. Jasmine, the picture is pretty dire at the moment and it's quite hard to see how you could have this big easing while the cases are growing so rapidly they're at their highest level since February I believe. Yeah so the data is looking pretty stark at the moment and the government always said that they would be led by the data and not the dates and what we're seeing is that the number of infections is increasing mostly due to the rise of the Delta variant. There's this fear that the NHS, which already had a year of dealing with COVID cases and is now dealing with the backlog, doesn't have much scope to deal with even a tiny increase in admissions. And so it's all looking pretty bleak at the moment. The only positive news in terms of the data is the fact that the vaccination programme is being rolled out quite rapidly. And the distance between the first and second doses for over 50s has been shortened. So 
as you said, it doesn't really seem realistic that come June 21st, nightclubs will be open, we'll see social distancing rules being removed. I think what we're likely to see is a sort of mix and match of some rules lifted and some kept in place. Because I think the political significance of the June 21st date is important. It was supposed to be Freedom Day. And so the government are going to want to try to seem as though they're on track with the roadmap, but also won't want to be seen as acting in a way that isn't safe for the public. I don't think it will be the great unlocking that we all hoped come June 21st. And finally, last word to you, George. We obviously know Boris Johnson likes to be very optimistic, but the people I've spoken to around him this week saying his key word about this is irreversibility. He doesn't want to have to ease restrictions and then bring them back in again. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's quite significant, I think, that uh, Rishi Sunak at the Treasury has indicated he would be prepared to see a delay of a few weeks if it meant the whole process is irreversible. Business won't like it, but at least if you extended for two weeks or possibly a month, that would give them some certainty on what they're planning for. It would give us more time to win that race between the vaccines and the virus. And, you know, just on a practical note, it's the summer, people can go out and meet outside, people are feeling slightly better about things. And of course, if you can get the final restrictions lifted by, let's say, the middle of July, that's before the school summer holidays starts, in England at least. And therefore, I think people could tolerate that. And I think there's very little political cost for Boris Johnson, even from some of the more hardline Conservative MPs who've been pushing him to open up everything up sort of more or less straight away and have been doing so for the last few months. Well, George, Jasmine and Peter, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then yes, please do subscribe. You can find us through all those usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if you're feeling positive this weekend, then give us a positive review. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Joss de la Mer. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.